to the PR Wind Down Podcast, the show for public relations professionals who are ready to see real change in the PR industry. We are your hosts, April Margulies and Laura Schooler. Let's get ready to wind down. Laura, do you want to kick things off with the things I should have been trained on segment? Well, yes, except that I know everything. <laughs> All right. So how do you upsell a client then? <laughs> this is a good question. First, you have to show your value by doing the things that they hired you for to begin with. Right. And then, you know, when you hit certain roadblocks on sort of the traditional PR, think of those things as opportunities to upsell. So you can upsell them with, well, you know, we can have bylined articles written for you, or we can write web content for you, or we can do social media content for you, you know, build through that. So it's like the whole uh, peso model, paid, earned, shared, and owned. And most of the time, what we do is the earned, right? That's usually why people come But the paid, the shared, and the owned are other components of the whole communications peso. And so when you, like I said, run into a roadblock, or maybe they're going to say, oh, you know, we wish that we had somebody who could run such and such a program. You can volunteer that. Now, don't volunteer it if it's like, we need somebody who's a great graphic designer to redesign that. If you don't really have somebody or you don't have a very close relationship with somebody who does that, there's certain things you can't wing. Right. Right. Or perhaps they need investor relations or some sort of marketing and you have a relationship with a company um, who does that, then you can upsell it that way. Or they're in the US and they need somebody now in London or Asia and you have a relationship there, then you can jointly, you know, upsell that. So there's a lot of a lot of ways to go at this, either just responsively when they're asking, do you know anybody who has this? Or when you see that a typical PR needs would benefit from some other sort of communications support. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So yeah, it's best to do it organically so that you're, to Laura's point, you're hearing the pain point that they brought up and then you're saying hey, actually, I don't know if that's something you need taken off your plate. Sounds like you guys are really spread thin, but we do have XYZ services if you're interested. Mm-hmm. Here's somebody that you know we can set up a call with on our team for you to chat through whether that's something that would be a good fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, media training is always a good way mm-hmm. for PR agencies to upsell because if you do a real one, it should probably be a four-hour long session that you could charge, I don't know, $2,500, $3,500 for. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, is it maybe you want to grow the account. Maybe they're $8,000 a month and you have all of this opportunity. And so how do you, you know, just grow the account from an 8,000 to let's say a 12,000, you know, how do you upsell the whole retainer 50%? Do you have any recommendations for something like that? Well, yes, because we have a point system in place and most other agencies don't. That's one of the ways that's easiest for us. So because we can say, hey, you're maxing out your points every month for your current budget. If we keep doing this and we're keep, we keep borrowing points from the next month and we keep looking for opportunities to cut things, you know, maybe, maybe we need to increase the budget. 
to do all the things that you're asking us to do. So because we have that matrix in place that makes it a lot easier, I think in general, if you don't have, you know, a set number of deliverables or a set scope of work for the budget, that's a lot trickier. But I think it could still be done if you say, you know, hey, the team is maxing out our hours or however you calibrate it with the client, right? We're coming up against our hours every month or we can't help you with this event unless your budget goes to 12 month or, you know, fill in the blank. So I think it's a matter of finding an opportunity to explain why the current budget is maxed out with the current activities and then what the new activities are that you could do on top of the existing activities if budget allowed. I think it's important to also take into consideration the timing of what's happening with the client. So if you know, for example, they have a lot of turnover or they can't make any budget moves until 2022 or whatever the case is, I think it's important to also just be considerate of the life cycle of the client internally to make mm-hmm. sure that you're also not bringing something up at a really weird moment that looks insensitive and like you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> but that's my only other kind of tip to add in there. Have you seen it work well or often? I mean, what's the percentage of how this kind of upsell is effective? I think it's really a matter of does the client actually have additional budget? And if so, <laughs> then it's easier. But if not, right. then it's then it just becomes another thing that you're offering them that they can't afford, which <laughs> can be frustrating for everyone. Maybe you already know that there's no way it's going to happen. But I mean, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, right? So maybe you like sort of put it out there gingerly or in a constructive way. And if the feedback is very strong to the no way, Jose, then let it go for the time being for a few months. If there's a little bit of a opening in the door, maybe you can suggest something like, well, you know, we could do it for a short period of time or we'll, you know, do this not for 4,000 extra dollars, but for 2,500 extra dollars, you know, and sort of incrementally. Mm -hmm. And I've also had luck just upselling them on a month to month basis. So, hey, if you want Mm -hmm. help with this white paper, this um, this project sort of, yeah, we'll invoice you for X instead of Y. Right. And do all of that. All right. Um, I like all that. I'm going to eat this apple. Perfect. (laughs) Yeah. I think the only other thing that I've heard from other agencies that they've done is do an addendum to the existing contract rather than sending a whole new contract through, which can can be less daunting to clients. Right. So you still have the basic contract if they need to pull it back or whatever. And this is a like short-term addendum or a specified addendum that doesn't change the basis of your agreement. And it doesn't force them to go through legal all over again and get a bunch Which of is a nightmare approvals, a, especially and in a big company. It depends yeah. on, right. depends on the company. So that's another, another tip. But I think other, other than that, right. I, think that I think we covered it. Right. Okay. Today's PR horror story of the week goes as follows. Hey, April and Laura, my boss broke my heart. Oh, no. I tried to say that like, Fredo, you broke my heart. (laughs) Picture this, okay? I'm at an ad agency and I'm a senior account exec and I'm vying for a manager promotion and I'm right on track time-wise and goal-wise according to my managers. So my big boss, the CEO, puts me on this massive new business pitch team 
we had an extremely tight turnaround for the pitch, but it was a big money client that would do a lot for the agency. And I was excited to prove my worth and land this client. My boss repeatedly told me it was the final test to see if I was up for the promotion to manager. So he kept referring to the lead as your next client. I stayed late, gave up two previously planned vacation days, and even worked some weekend hours to craft a totally ironclad pitch. Internal team loves it, we present, and we land the client. Then, boom, my boss gave the manager spot on the account to someone else. Oh my his God. colleague from a previous agency gig and work bestie. Oh no. I even had it in emails. And when I asked why, my boss said, I just wasn't there yet. I'm getting very mad right now. I didn't get that promotion in the two more months it took me to find a new job. Now I don't feel so bad. As Ariana Grande once said, thank you, next. Is there a way to know when you're not being a great team member, you're just getting played? Hmm. I like the story. I like how it ended. I yes, it's a happy person, ending. I think this person did the perfect thing, but it is very aggravating. I mean, they make movies about stuff like this. I mean, it sounds like a movie from the 80s where like you didn't get the promotion. <laughs> you know, the woman didn't get the promotion, the man got the promotion, like that movie, you know? Yeah. Mr. Mom or whatever. So uh, that's crazy. I mean, that's so blatant, like nepotism or whatever. Yeah. I don't know if you would know that you're being played. I mean, it didn't, did this person enter the equation until after the pitch? Didn't sound like it, right? This, this other person that got the promotion instead? Yeah. Well, it sounds like it was another person on the account though, who had been involved, I guess, in the pitch too. But yeah. See, you don't know you're going to be played. And even if you do, you kind of have to keep going through it because the only chance you have. So maybe when you get older and are experienced this stuff and you know that this work bestie is on the team and that there's a, you know, that person wants the job too, that you're not likely to get it. And maybe you mm -hmm. don't cancel your vacation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that takes a lot of experience and a certain kind of courage to do. and. I would not beat yourself up over the fact that you didn't do that. Mm -mm. But maybe when you're, you know, 50 years old, you will. But you did do the right thing by not saying, I'm going to stay and work harder and then he'll promote me. Yes, agreed. You said sayonara, sweethearts. And two months later, you were somewhere else. <laughs> no, that's the right thing to do for sure. That's yeah. all I have to say about that. I know. I don't, I don't know if I have any other thoughts on the how to know if you're being played. I guess the only other, the only other thing would be if you have seen other people get played at the agency, there are some agency cultures mm -hmm. where there are a lot of games. And if you've seen that other people left for a similar reason or somebody else got kind of screwed or you might want to start paying closer attention to whether you're in the end group because Usually what happens in those cultures is there's an in-group that gets everything they want and there's an out-group and you never know which one you're actually in because they'll yeah. convince you that you're in the in-group like Mean Girls, but then all of a sudden one day you're not. So you might be in the in-group with these three people, but when yeah. it comes to this higher up, 
right. suddenly you're in that group. Right. If you can figure out how like political your manager is and where you might stand on the political spectrum, you might be able to figure it out. But this is very not normal <laughs> kind of things. And you have to like have gone through it and seen it before until you can recognize it unless yeah. you're just like a, a super like you know street smart person which i am not right right <laughs> um well i think it's a wrap on that and right. we have Rangini in our waiting room okay yeah okay here she comes hey how are you good how are you good nice to see you again yeah nice to see you where are you you're like in a barn <laughs> literally it's my it's my house but uh <laughs> i do have a barton door yeah maybe it's just the door it's just the door <laughs> okay so today we have a great guest it's ronjini joshua and she's the owner of the silver telegram pr agency as well as green seed pr she's also yes. the host of her own podcast shows uh the pr playbook and the Green Room Pod, and she's the author of the PR Playbook, the book. The book. <laughs> so <laughs> I like to like make it sound fancy, and I just say I wrote the book, but the, I don't think anybody knows about books. So, so okay. <laughs> why did you? When did you write the PR Playbook? Book. <laughs> you know, that's a good question. I sometimes forget it exists but I wrote it in like 2017 or 2018. Cause I just found like a lot of our clients, we work in the startup space, startup and tech companies. Nobody knew what PR was and they had really like weird expectations of exactly what we were <laughs> going to do for them. And Can so you give an I example? Like, Can you give an example yeah, of I mean, their weird expectations? I mean, you know, like the the best expectation is they want to start PR, then they want to start today, their press announcement tomorrow or even next week. And then they also want to get into the, like the Wall Street Journal. And so you're like, oh yeah, good planning on your part. You know, like, <laughs> because we're just magicians. And I think, I think PR people are magicians. We're amazing people. But uh, <laughs> so that's the kind of thing. It was like some like very wild expectation in a short amount of time, you're going to get like the wall street journal or right. the tech crunch or whoever they wanted to get right. And I just started realizing like, they just don't know what PR is and what the fundamental of PR is. And so yeah. th that's why I wrote the book was to just kind of tutor some of the younger companies on, Hey, here's like a brand basics on PR. Like this mm -hmm. is just a primer for you basically. So that's, that's kind of what it was, the intention was like, this is a primer. This is how you can tr start doing it yourself before you're ready for a PR agency. There's a lot of things you should be doing beforehand. And so it was kind of like that, like to relieve my own frustration of people not knowing anything yep. about PR. And then a couple of years later, I was like, oh, I should just do a podcast based on the book. So then the podcast came up, so <laughs> yeah. So that sounds a lot like ours, except we didn't write a book. Okay. <laughs> so it's okay. Um, you can you can interchange the time frame. Now you could write the book. It's probably right, better go after you do the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I I would do an audio book, and I would use Perfect. voices that weren't okay. mine. Your no. voice okay. or somebody else's. Yeah, that's <laughs> explain. <laughs> Like April, when you did the um, the hamster voice. 
<laughs> so you want the whole book to be delivered in some weird cartoon sound. Where were you before yeah. you did your own agency podcast book writing? How did you get to this? Yes, point? I actually went to school for PR. I feel like I'm one of the few people who like went to school for PR and then have I hear a about career. it more and more. When I was younger, it didn't exist, but no, I hear about it yeah. more and more these days. It was like journalism with an emphasis in PR. And I interned at like five different places, but one of the places was a PR agency. So I got a job right out of college. Very, very lucky, I guess. And I worked at small PR agencies for a couple of years, got a lot of experience because, you know, when you're at a small PR agency, you do everything. And then I moved up to San Francisco because I was in tech. And so I was at big agencies up in San Francisco. And then I went in-house because I've always wanted to try like kind of, you know, like that's the whole thing in school. They tell you like boutique PR, big agency PR, and there's in-house PR. They're so different. And you're like, okay, sure. Uh, But they really are. They're so different. So So I worked for video. Yeah, I worked for a video game company in Southern California. And I was there and they video games was like a whole different beast. And so that was really fun, but kind of crazy. And then I went back, the big agency recruited me, like I worked for them for a little bit. And then you guys probably understand this. It's just like, kind of like, there's a lot of politics, there's a lot of things and you don't get to kind of really be that creative as creative Mm -hmm. as you might want to be. And so at that time we were passing up tons of startup companies and it was like a big timeframe. It was 10 years ago, 2011 ton of startups were coming out of the woodwork and they didn't have like a budget of like 20 grand a month. So they just kind of kept passing on those smaller startup companies. I was like, I could work for all of these companies. And so I just left and started doing startup PR. Um, Were you writing down the names of all of the startups that they passed on and you called them up later? I mean, I should have done that, but no, I wasn't, I wasn't that business savvy back then. I was just a PR person. Okay. Right. (laughs) No, I get it. You're younger and whatever, but I, I I thought I was waiting for you to say, and one of those startups was, you know, Google or whatever, but yeah, (laughs) they passed up on. I wish. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That would be amazing. No, there, there's a lot of really cool different, like, cause it was like deep tech. So it's kind of like, Yep. names people don't know you know all the hidden stuff yeah um, but it was stuff. it was and also I had a lot of connection video games are really weird in that they're very incestuous they just go in a big mm-hmm. cycle so I had a lot of video game connections so I was working in the video game space I was working with startups and you know it just kind of blossomed from there interesting so cool how are you liking having your own agency now that you did that I mean I love the freedom of having your own PR agency but I would have done it differently for sure because, you know, I went into it as a freelancer. So like being a freelancer and starting a business and then being a business person and starting a business is two so different things. I would have had like a business plan or something because I did not have one. I did not have one. Um, And so. So what kinds of clients (laughs) do you have now? Are they startup tech clients or? Yeah, they're mostly tech companies, but both in the consumer and enterprise space. And then in 2019, a couple of years ago, we started doing cannabis stuff. So we work with cannabis and hemp companies as well. So yeah, I mean, it's cool because I get a lot of gadgets at my house. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. That's, I feel like, so I recently <laughs> worked with people like you, like April and other people, you know, youngish women 
who are starting their own PR firms or are like risen very fast up the food chain in an agency. And they are super smart and running at it a million miles an hour. And they scare the shit out of everybody who works for them because people are like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know. I don't know. And you don't know any other way. And like, be like, when I was like an intern or account coordinator, they used to tell us like, Hey, just Google it. And that was like the training that we had. So like that's what you expect now of other people, but they don't want to do that. So well, they were like that even before God, Google existed. Uh, I'll tell you, like <laughs> you didn't get training even back in the day. Like you just didn't. You yeah. you just had to sort of like wing it. And I think it's right. one of the. It's between sort of a content and also like an HR sort of experience in PR. So I try to come in because I'm older, and I'll say to the junior staff, I'll be like okay, do you know what that meant? Or do you know what this acronym is? Or do you understand? And they'll usually be like, yeah. no. And I'll like explain to them. Cause I realize, cause I remember like, they don't know what, you know, R-I-F-T-W-B-X-Y-Z. And sometimes I don't even know what it means, you know? So like we have to like work on it together, but I try to see when I know that somebody's probably way out of depth to, to say, all right, let me explain to you what just happened there. Yeah. And depending on how technical things are, it sounds like you have a lot of, like you said, deep tech clients that can be really yeah. daunting because these are some things that not a lot of people understand in the world so well and that's that's the other funny part is that I don't know like 50% of the things uh, like what I'm talking about 50% of the time as far as like technical expertise but right. I know how to wing it and understand just the basic concepts enough where I can try to explain it and I know what questions to ask and so that's the one thing that I think differs is that I've had so many, so much experience with so many complicated things that I know how to like just decode very, very quickly. Right. And I don't realize like that maybe not everyone has that skill or experience yet, you know, when they're or like the VR confidence, and, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, how many times have you been rejected as a PR person? I mean, you have to have to kind of be able to sink or swim. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. What are some of the other trends that you're seeing and expect to continue into next year? A lot of what I've been talking about with our clients, just even like service wise, is that, you know, we have to do a lot more, a lot more content creation. So I'm looking at hiring a lot more writers than I used to. I mean, Mm -hmm. typically PR people are supposed to be able to write, but Mm -hmm. um, that's not always the case. Not everybody has every skill, right? Like Mm -hmm. I would say my, my media relations and my pitching is much stronger than my writing. I mean, now it's a little bit different. I've been doing it for such a freaking long time. But, mm-hmm. you know, you have those people that are skilled writers and then you have those people that like know how to communicate with the press. And so I think we are looking at becoming more of a content-focused communications agency, you know, integrated with all those things. I, I still love media relations, but just it's so difficult with how the media is trending these days as mm-hmm. far as, how many reporters there are, who's writing what, what's considered news, I think, has even like really changed. I was in the startup tech space when startups and tech was really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Now everything is startups and tech. So how do you differentiate yourself in a, in a pool Me- that's like that large? Yeah. yeah. So I don't think people realize like how much time and effort it takes to create and post and 
make content that actually is like people want to look at. And so. Well, and also when you talk about social media, it's not only the content creation, it's the marketing of it. So there needs to be somebody yes. who knows how to like, I don't know, paid, promoted, you know, all of those kinds of things on the back end. Cause we know organic is not really doing the trick anymore. I don't know if you know this, but our podcast always includes a horror story every episode. Oh, and so I don't, I don't know if I, I'm putting you on the spot here, but do you have any horror yeah. stories from early on the things that happened in your career you can share? Well, you know what? Actually, I have a couple, but I'm going to name my own horror stories so that like I can just call myself out. But I did listen <laughs> to the podcast, so I, I do know that you guys have horror stories. So this one's a recent one, and I'm not going to call out the reporter because one, I don't exactly remember who it was, but um, <laughs> but just just not to make it too specific. So yeah. you know, I did you know as a good PR person, I wanted to do my research, make sure I was addressing the right person. We had this really cool consumer product. And we're doing, you know, a review program. We're sending out units. And this was like a very, very high price point luxury item. So I wanted to make sure it was an e-bike. So I wanted to make sure that like this person was going to review it, you know, and I knew this person was like a very good target. So I look at their profile. I'm looking at their Twitter profile. And then I see that they have a profile on the actual media site. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I look at the media site profile and he has, he has his bio there. And he talks about his pet bunny and I was like oh this is gonna be funny I'm gonna write something about the bike and putting the bunny in a basket I'm gonna it's just gonna be very funny he's gonna have to respond to me I'm like so convinced that this was like the best pitch ever and in his profile there was the name of the bunny and I don't remember the name but I put the name of the bunny in the subject line okay obviously he opened it because what happened after that was I got like basically virtually yelled at and he got pissed. He got so mad. And I was, I said something like, Hey, yeah, take your buddy for a ride in this e-bike. It's going to be so awesome. Like we'd love to send you the bike. We have a local bike shop put it together for you. You guys are going to have a great time. Right. Something like, something like that. And he got mad and he's like, you really shouldn't mention people's pets. That's really creepy. And like, Dude, this information was in your, your media body. profile. Right. Yes. So I I tried to be like, you know, taking that extra step right. and doing that extra mile, making sure he was the right person, making sure I had relevant information. And it just totally bit me in the ass. It was, I was mortified. And even like, you know, I've been doing this for 18 years. I was mortified. I was like, this sucks because it was a big outlet. And I was like, I don't want to be blackballed because I right. I was just like, this is crazy. You are so pissed off, but you have the name of your bunny in your profile. Don't name your pets, dude. That's, that's cautionary wild. tale, guys. That is kind of weird. Normally that's I exactly like what would work. Right. That, that, uh, yeah, I think it died. That's what I thought you were going to say is that the bunny died. I don't know. No, but he didn't say that. But I just feel like something bad happened to it. I think something bad happened to the bunny. <laughs> <laughs> what are the other, any other big challenges aside from the great resignation or the media influx? Is there any other kind of weird challenge in the PR industry? Oh, I think I'm, I'm like at a career crossroads. I think also I'm experiencing some kind of midlife crisis or something. But I think like because of the shift of how PR is going, I'm you know, trying to think, well, how are we going to change as an agency? 
how can we best serve and address the needs of like people who are potential clients? And then also a lot of clients, especially in our space of startups and stuff like that, they think they want to do it themselves. So a lot of people are taking <laughs> PR in-house, but they're not doing PR which I think, I think is interesting. They think they're doing PR, but they're doing a lot of content marketing, right? Like mm -hmm. they're doing a yes. lot of HubSpot and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I think explaining PR in a time where like the media isn't really as well respected is very difficult. Right. It's funny. I work for a very big company. I've worked for a few, so nobody can pinpoint this one except the people who works with me. And Somebody came in to manage PR like a, at a very senior level and told us to not write press releases anymore. And this was going back a yeah. number of years. And that like it would be blog posts and social media. And this was a giant major company. We're like what? And that's exactly what this person was equating PR to content marketing and social media because it was the new thing, you know, to do from a B2B uh, standpoint. Yeah and dismantled the whole PR team. It's crazy. And then was gone, you know, not even two years later and you know, whatever. Then they had to start all over again, I guess. I don't know. But yeah, it was, we were like, what is going on? Like what? And yeah. so it reminded me of I that, of people I... thinking of what PR is or does. Mm -hmm. I kind of think it's like a cycle. Like this is gonna happen in a cycle. It's gonna go down and then we're gonna come back up into like a normal, yeah. thing I don't know I feel like everything's cyclical but I, there's no proof I have no proof of any of this <laughs> so you don't think PR is dying oh no I mean I think it's like the same thing it's not like I don't believe in PR PR is a thing it exists it's just a difference of what kind of tactics you're going to use right we everyone's going to have to communicate I mean, I think that's the reason I went into PR because I love writing and I love like talking to people and I mean, that's always going to exist. Like, how, how is that going to go away? So it's just a matter of like, you know, transforming into something different mm -hmm. and accepting that. I, I feel, I do feel a little old and I feel like I love doing things the old school way. And it's, it is difficult. I could see like why old people have trouble changing, <laughs> you know? I still use my fashion. But I'm trying, I, I'm trying to be an old dog that learns new tricks, but it's very hard. Did you get my fax? Did you get my fax? Oh my God. Wait, oh wait, do you make that phone call? Because I used to, when I started in PR, you would fax everybody and call and say, did you get the fax? Did you, no, we, hold on, let me, okay. No, we didn't get the fax. Okay, I'll resend the fax. That was what we spent like eight hours a day doing. Yeah. And then yeah, when the hit came, fun. run down, buy the New York Post, cut it out, tape it on a yeah. piece of paper. Oh, and then That's tape it on the, yeah. I remember making coverage books by hand. Oh, okay. And so you're not that young either. Spiral, <laughs> no, I'm not that young. Uh, making them spiral bound. We used to yeah. like spiralize them in the Oh, with those machines or whatever? Oh my yeah. Oh my God. What a pain in the <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> you just link it, right? And send an email. It's crazy. So it's what beautiful. Do you, what do you think the hardest thing about pitching uh, media right now for a client who's not, you know, world famous for a startup. What's the hardest thing about pitching a startup right now? <laughs> the hardest thing about pitching a startup is explaining why they're not like explaining to the startup what the problem is. It's not the media that I think I have a problem with. It's like if every startup thinks they're special. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's great. Maybe you are special, but like 
Why are you special? And is that real, really a reason? Like they need to have like a gut check. So what are some of the creative things that you do for clients, you know, that you were saying maybe the bigger agencies wouldn't do, or how do you give them that cool factor if they're missing it? Well, one thing is we're a lot faster than a big PR agency. You do something with a big PR agency, it takes you like three or four weeks to get that done, right? Like, so any boutique agency, I think is a lot more nimble. We're like really spry. We're going to get on the go. Creatively, I think, I mean, I I had this conversation in my mind and with other people about is the press release dead and how do you make that relevant? How do you make it exciting? Mm -hmm. And so we have tried to do different things with press releases. We've done video releases, which I know like 15 years ago, they started trying to push this multimedia release and it never flew. And, And I think I'm revisiting that. I'm like, maybe it should fly now. We try to do different types of launches where it doesn't have to be based on the press release. I always do a press release. So that's like my, that's the flagship. That's like my stamp in the ground is like the press release. It's like kind of your milestone marker or your benchmark. And then we do the creative thing aside alongside of it. But it's just a matter of timing because I don't know if you know this about my background, but like I did also like, so 2011, we started the agency. I have been very, very involved in many, many crowdfunding campaigns. And that is a huge thing in crowdfunding. You have to be creative. You have to be like, you have to really drive interest to get coverage. And it's very difficult. Um, And we've been able to do really well at crowdfunding PR, which I hate and love at the same time. But that's, you have to use your creativity there. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think, where a lot of our creative ideas come from is from these crowdfunding campaigns of like, okay, how do you make a quick buck? Like literally, how do you drive traffic in a short amount of time with this like sense of urgency. And so we kind of lean on that kind of strategy. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's gonna make people like, what is the call to action? How do we get them there? I always tell people like people who work with us, send the email to yourself and would you open it? <laughs> like, That's interesting. if you wouldn't open it, <laughs> yeah, if you wouldn't open it, then that reporter's definitely not opening. <laughs> I like that. I've never heard anybody give that suggestion. Send the email to yourself or would you open it? So when I think about that, it's, does it look like telemarketing or spam, right? And most of, I think probably your pitches do. Yeah. So like, what would it, what would make it look more personalized? Like what would make it look openable? Or newsworthy. I've done a lot of, I've had, in newsworthy, yeah. The name of the bunny. Email marketing. (laughs) The name of the bunny. Don't use the name of the bunny. (laughs) It's. Man, it was such a good pitch, guys. I like it. Just, uh, so it sounds funny. amazing. I, that was sorry. Now I'm going back. I did another one really similar, and it actually worked. Right. So that's why I thought this one will work. I yeah. It's no, that it's a, it depends on personalities. You're taking a little bit of a risk, and sometimes it pays off. And yeah. it's either going to sink or swim, right? By doing what you did, by being really bold, I've gotten uh, letters published in uh, you know by me, like just because I was enraged yeah. about something in in publications. And then I also got yeah. celebrities to follow me on Twitter because of what I said. And it's pretty hilarious. Something so. you said. And that's, you know, that's a really good case study too. I think that's another thing that people should take away. If someone's trying to get published or you're trying to get a pitch read or something like that's the other thing I try to encourage clients to do is be bold, right. but some people just don't want to do it. Like yeah. I have one client right now and we try to get him to say a lot of things. I said, can you just like have an opinion on this thing? 
<laughs> he does not want it. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't, he's like, he's so scared. He's so conservative. And I'm like, but if you want to get the big coverage, you got to have an opinion. Like, right. And, it, and, your opinion, and your opinion should maybe be why this doesn't work, you know, not like why this is great. Yeah, you yeah. know, it should be like the yeah. sort of oppositional or like not the, the Opposition, not what yeah. everybody's saying. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And a I mean, lot of people so won't do things, it. I guess it takes years of working in PR to realize like that's the only way to go. Totally. But there's always something new that comes up. Like right now, dealing with the shifting climate of PR, like trying to figure out how to navigate next steps. How are we going to evolve? And mm -hmm. then also then the whole marketing question of like, okay, now I want to get clients that I want. I don't want to just put clients that are coming to us. So how do we do that? It's yeah. Like you said early on in this conversation, it's very, very difficult to find people that um, kind of match the style and, and process of what you do. Yeah because of our model and because we have a lot of freelancers and because we pair people together based on expertise, we don't have to yeah. find the all-star that does to your point, all five pieces mm -hmm. of PR. Well, yeah. so you need, you have a great writer. You have somebody great at media relations, somebody great at account management, maybe you stick they them together. Yeah. Stick them together, make a team, let, you know, cut them loose. So I'm finding yeah. success that way because there are a lot of great publicists out there. They're just, yeah, there aren't, as many who are good at everything. And then the only other piece of it is just that I'm trying to really like place an emphasis on the culture and being a nice place to work and, you know, having people enjoy being part of the family, which I think helps. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things beyond money and all of those kinds of obvious things is that if people feel supported and not basically scared that they're going to screw up or that they're going to get yelled at or whatever. You're right. So I think that that is a real key to having a happy group of people, a growing group hmm. of people, people who are doing the right work for what they want to do. You, you don't want to just, however, people should learn new things and maybe they'll be great at something yeah. that they're not good at now because they just haven't done it enough. So to figure out mm -hmm. how to put people together with other people who are good at those various things to help bring them up and train them and show them what they do. Right. But it's all in the name of support, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I guess now more than ever people need that like mm -hmm. comfort be Especially able to when have you're that. by yourself maybe in your yeah. house and you have you're not interacting especially for younger people. I feel like maybe that's hard, you know, to start a brand new mm -hmm. job out of college and never have met anybody or worked with anybody. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I can't imagine like not having internships, not having a workplace mm -hmm. to go to, to kind of learn the ropes. It's kind of crazy. I mean, um, it's very, very different to be able to learn in person than like virtually, you know? Mm -hmm. For sure. Right. Even when you're more senior, there's maybe types yeah. of clients you've never worked on or, you know, topics that you're just not as familiar with. So to be able to discuss it with whomever else in the agency on your team, who's better at that or to have somebody help you, you know, get that information or get that learning, no matter what level you're at. Right. Totally. Yeah. Have you ever hired a journalist who wants to become a PR person? April is a journalist who became a PR person. Well, okay. Okay. That's, that's, that's the test of it. I've had people come to me from, that we work with that are reporters that we work with and they're like, Oh, I want to get into PR. But it's just surprising to see 
they don't really have the same kind of pitching skills that PR people have. Well, this is the way I did it. And it worked for me uh-huh. and a bunch of other people that, that were media relations specialists for Carmichael and Spong. So I was, okay. first I was brought on to be a technical writer. So that was easy because I'm writing oh, yeah. articles, which I can do in my sleep, right? Then I got moved into doing media relations and that I actually, as long as all I was doing was writing a pitch, figuring out what the story angle was for the client and getting a media list handed to me that then I could vet and make sure was good, you know, then it was fine. Yeah. So I think the entry point for journalists, if you were to hire them, would be either having them just start with writing, because I've, I've done that successfully, I had them write a press release, and they did a good job. I think if you had them write the pitch, that's another thing that I've mm-hmm. that I found really good. Like I've Right, it's like write... the communication <clears throat> part is hard for them. They know, they yeah. know how to write the pitch, too, because they've gotten them. But yeah. The, then I think you could get them warmed up that way and then move them into yeah. more and more. Yeah. I think hiring a journalist and expecting them to be a good account manager is not a likely scenario. I mean, they can maybe get there, but like, don't expect them to be, you know, all things PR just because they talk to a few PR people for, you know, a couple of years. I've seen it myself. Yeah, Great, interesting yeah. writers, you know, inter- like very thoughtful people. And the other thing of like, you know, all of the different things that you have to do when you're managing an account or many accounts between uh-huh. the client management, the meetings you have with them, the like memos you have to send, you know, the agendas, the monthly reports, the press. Re- yeah. All, I mean, that's a lot. And then making sure other people on the team are doing their part and, you know, keeping up, like if you get media coverage, updating the media coverage list, you know, they just don't, they just don't do this kind of thing. It's not second nature to them. Right, but writing right, is, yeah. and thinking of what interesting yeah. ideas is, and that that's a lot. But I think you should most likely sort of slowly get them in Warm them that, up. that portal. Yeah, they're good at mock interviews too. Oh yeah, oh yeah, they tend to be good at media training or as a supplement to media training to ask those hard questions. Yeah, at the yeah. End. yeah. So I think a there's a way to make it work, but I think you do have to ease them into it because it's it's a whole yeah. other world. They don't think it's a whole other world when they reach out to me. They're like, oh yeah, I can do this. It's PR. It's easy. Okay. <laughs> Not so much. Not so no. much. Amazing. Well, I know we've kept you for over uh, an hour now. So I want to see if uh, I can keep talking to you guys forever. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> Super fun. Well, thank you so much. It's yep. been a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's always nice to shoot the you know, shit with fellow PR people because it helps us vent a little bit. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. You made a lot of great points too that I I very much relate to. So I appreciate the the feeling of camaraderie for sure. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Don't hang up, April. I'm not hanging up. No. Do you want to get into our PR news of the week? So the old PR news of the week. Okay, April. So we talk about Substacks a lot. Yes. And there's been a lot of recent news. Recently, Substack says it has more than 1 million paid subscriptions. Then what else? Another humorous Substack panic. Has the empire really struck back at independent newsletters? And Barry Weiss breaks the rules and makes a mint. She's making 800 grand as a Substack writer. It's impressive. 
been, there's a lot of tweets, I found this, that are calling Substack a major funder of the right. And I know what you're going to say about that. <laughs> okay, let's be honest, right? I mean, as we said before, if we have statistics that show that most mainstream media outlets are left-leaning, then by default, that was me leaning left. I see that. <laughs> by default, that means that there needs to be an outlet for more voices that no longer feel like they're being heard through the left-leaning outlets. Like the reason that Barry Weiss left the New York Times, right? Mm -hmm. She left because she felt like she was being ostracized. Like micromanaged? She was being micromanaged. She was being hated on by people in the hallways. Oh, um, well, because she was, not, she was right. she alleges she was being censored. So given that, if those voices are no longer welcome, then of course they're going to find a new place to go, right? I mean, my concern is that there's sort of a smear campaign going on against it being right-leaning to try to discredit it because the powers that be at the mainstream media are scared of losing revenue. So then they're just creating a social media hysteria around Substack being right-leaning, which it's not entirely, right? It's still, it's still a platform where right. anybody can do things. It's just that the need for it is greater on the right. Or maybe because the people who are making a lot of money are more right-leaning writers. And so people always like to, you know, go after those people who make the most money, you know, raise them up. And then when they succeed, like I mean, swat them down. I don't know. Glenn Greenwald is not right-leaning. Like, well, some people on Twitter would disagree with you. April, I, saw, I, I saw that. I couldn't believe it. I, I thought it was some of it. Most offensive thing I ever saw was that criticism of Glenn Greenwald. <laughs> well, I see somebody, I mean, whatever, just a person out on Twitter saying, consider the source. Barry Weiss is a notorious right-wing writer who makes a lot of money writing her fascistic leaning crap on Substack, along with several other creeps who do the same. Former darlings of the left who've now gone to the dark side. And then this other guy, well, he's not just a guy, he's Benjamin Dixon. Black liberation is black excellence. And he's got 178.4 thousand followers. My best guess is that when Glenn Greenwald lost the intercept, he not only lost his mind, but he lost a pretty big check that he now has to hustle right-wing media and substack to make up for. Or maybe he was a scumbag even when I thought he was a good dude. Live and learn. I mean, I think that the problem here is that if you're a centrist, you're automatically considered a right-wing extremist. Mm. There's, you either have to be with the narrative on the left, and if you don't embrace it entirely and you ask hard questions like Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi, et cetera, do, then suddenly you're thrown in with a bunch of fascists on the right, which doesn't there's no room for anybody to have critical thought and ask these hard questions. So I think, I just think it's an issue in general with people not, not wanting to think outside of what the party line is, right? There's a party line. And if you question that in any way, shape or form, suddenly you're a horrible person. I guess, but is it also possible these people are <laughs> kind of right-leaning and using Substack as their own personal, remember Parler, the 
the well, right-leaning version of Twitter? I would say I would say that they are libertarian leaning. Right. Um, and libertarians and so, are usually white dudes who are Republicans. <laughs> In my experience. I mean, Glenn Greenwald is literally the guy that Edward Snowden called to break the story about what the government was doing. He is known for being somebody who fights for civil liberties. Well, how about this? To put a little bit of a positive spin on the fact that Substack writers are right wing. <laughs> what about <laughs> there's an article in Axios about the positive influence of Substack and for example, they are considering that Substack's success will help encourage people to get in the habit of paying for quality content, thus bolstering their own subscription efforts. You know, the New York Times, other publications have created these newsletters, right? I think we've mentioned before right? that are yeah. subscription only. Even if you subscribe to the New York Times, you still have to subscribe to some of these other newsletters. And it just might be, you know, a new world of how people consume high quality media. The only thing that concerns me with that is that people who are not willing to pay or people can't afford to pay, only the rich can afford to get like, you know, high quality news. That to me sounds like an extension of only the rich can pay to get quality education, right? Because the public education that's supposed to be free is so crappy in this country. Mm -hmm. So... I think it's good for business, but maybe bad for, you know, humanity. What's, wait, what's good for business and what's bad for humanity? So what's good for business, perhaps, is that there are people willing to pay and they've got 1 million subscribers on Substack and who knows how many other subscribers on these other platforms or other news organizations, newsletters, so that they don't have to rely on advertising or where the like daily newspaper or the weekly, you know, magazine subscriptions have plummeted but now people are more willing to pay for these newsletters. So there, at least there's like a business model where they're making revenues in different ways for high quality. And the fact that like real writers are interested in doing this because they too are making a lot of money. That's good for business. What's not good for humanity is that only people who are willing or able to afford it are going to get quality journalism and the rest is going to be, you know, idiocracy out there or what. And that reminds me of public education that's gotten to the point where it used to be able to get at least a quality basic education in public schools and that continues to plummet and people are either now send, paying to send their kids to private school or parochial school or they live in places that are so expensive because the public schools are excellent because the property taxes in those towns are you know, out of this world. You know, The rich get richer and the poor get poorer these days. So I just wonder, if we're trying to have a civil society and we have to pay for access to education and quality journalism, is that a good precedent? I mean, haven't we always had to pay for newspapers until recently where everything was free online? People it's just true. Paid but for did newspapers. You, but weren't they like, you know, 25 cents? I mean, I don't know how much a Substack subscription well, some of the, is. Some of them are free. Some of some Substacks are totally free. It's just if they choose to charge. I mean, the nice thing is, to your point from before, that then journalists can actually make a real living for doing right. God's work, which is a very difficult profession, yep. so which we've talked about before. So I think there's a huge advantage that if, if somebody is doing good journalism that people are finding useful, then they can be financially rewarded for that. Yeah. I but mean, are, usually it's $5 a month, so it's not like... Is that, is that all it is? But yeah. you know, as the, it's sort of like 
Uber, that was cheap and now it's not. You know, mm. cable used to pay for cable and there was supposed to be no commercials on any cable channel. Well, that went out the window. These things always have a way of like starting low or whatever and then like getting more expensive or other things change. And I, I don't begrudge somebody, you know, to make as much money as they want to some extent, at least in something like journalism. However, is the promise of so much more money going to cause the best writers to go into paid only outlets where then are you going to really subscribe to 20 different things? No, and, and now you have to pay for all of those things online as well. And so then are you going to pay for, well, I, I want to hear about, you know, sports. So I'm going to have to pay the sports. And are you going to hear about, but maybe people used to buy Sports Illustrated and, you know, all these other different magazines. And now it's just a matter of you're kind of buying it online. Mm-hmm. I guess the main difference is, and you're right, is that the people who are doing the writing are getting a lot of the money, whereas before they were not so much. Right. All right. So maybe I talked myself up and down and around and out. So you no longer think Substack is evil? No, it might be. I just don't um, (laughs) have enough information to, to say that I know it for sure because of ABC. We don't have enough information yet in general, but I will tell you for publicists, there are a number of freelancers who are using Substack that if you subscribe to their Substacks for free, they will send you everything they're working on, everything they want, how they want to be pitched, what the subject heading has to be, whether you have to be on affiliate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a great resource for publicists. Let's say, I wonder if there's a Substack on you know, health tech or whatever. You just have to like, I guess, Google it and see. I mean, are these um, people like listed incision yet? Do we know? Or do you know how? You can basically go on and you can do a search function on Substack and then click on, okay, either search for technology or there's like a little technology bubble. Mm-hmm. And then it will pop up with the top tech writers based on the number of people subscribed to their Substack. Some of the freelance writers that are on Substack, not because they're writing on Substack, but because they're using Substack to source stories that they're writing as freelancers for other outlets, include Lindsay Tiger, Bruce Gruber, Ali Walonsky, Leah Groth, Alice Dubin, and Jill Schmidthaus. If you go to the search function, it'll say, find people I follow on Twitter, And so you can click on that button and then anybody that you follow on Twitter who's on Substack, it will populate for you. Hmm. So that's another way to do it. What I do think it's something that we need to watch as publicists because I do think there will be more writers either using it to source stories or who are bouncing out and doing their own thing there as well because they're being laid off by the media and they need a new outlet. You know, I do understand that the optics are that it's right-leaning, but I think, like I said before, I think there's a good reason for that, but I think it doesn't also mean that it'll stay that way. Uh, right, and that there's a lot of other writers on there that have probably nothing to do with being left or right-wing at all. They're writing about 100%. subjects, yeah. Right, like Casey Newton, for example, he has a tech newsletter. He's the long longtime Silicon Valley editor of The Verge, mm-hmm. and he has a substack called Platformer nothing to do with politics right? right yeah and Lindsay Tiger and Ali Walensky are like 
not at all. They're kind of like, I think they're like Lifestyle, consumer wellness. Travel, yeah, exactly. Nothing yeah. to do with Paul. Nothing. Zero. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Seth Abramson, who is the Newsweek columnist, the New York Times bestselling author. He's also got a substack on there called Proof. That's in the culture section. So it's not like a bunch of random yahoos. I will say, mm-hmm. I also found when I did some research that there are experts on there who aren't journalists, who are just like foodie experts and they're right. food sub stacks or what. Right. It's not, like it's not, it's, right. I think it's just that the, the most famous sub stack right. writers today. Are political or incendiary. And yeah. That's what's going to pull focus, but that's not where the universe ends. So I think that that's really important. And what we should make sure comes through on the podcast is that there's plenty of Substack participants, writers who are writing about completely non-left or right type of topics, issues, et cetera. And they do not identify as being right or left for that matter. No. That they're, you know, writing on. Travel. <laughs> right. Food. Mm-hmm. Wellness. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we put a fork in that twice. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next, April? I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a wrap. That's it. We're going to close down. Thank you so much for tuning in for the PR Wind Down podcast. And thank you to Ronjini for joining us for a very exciting interview. Remember, you can submit your own agency stories and questions. And please share our show with your friends and colleagues. If you subscribe and leave us a rating, it will help us reach other listeners like you. And if you have an anonymous PR horror story of your own, send it our way at the contact email below the episode notes. Can't wait to wind down with you again next time. Next time.